0: This is the second session in the Mishkon Durea Black History Month programme. And the title of the programme is Colonial Amnesia, a Legal and Historical Review of the Afterlife of Britain's Rule in Africa. And today, Max Duplessis, who is a lawyer, advocate and academic from South Africa, is with me to discuss the title of this session, False Binaries Towards an Understanding of Contemporary Reparative Approaches to the legacy of colonial injustice. Behind that title is a rather simpler topic, which is the reparations debate. Now, Max is an advocate and has been one in South Africa since 2000. He is an adjunct professor at the Nelson Mandela University and an honorary research fellow at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban. He is also a tenant at Chambers in South Africa and also a tenant here at Doughty Street in London and is an associate fellow in international law at Chatham House, the Royal Institute for International Affairs in London. In South Africa, Max practices in public law, human rights, international law and competition law and appears before a number of uh, different tribunals including the Constitutional Court, the Supreme Court of Appeal, the High Courts and the Competition Tribunal and the Competition Appeals Court. So that's his domestic practice But he's also burgeoning international practice, and he advises governments, international organizations and NGOs, and has appeared in most of the international tribunals, including the International Criminal Court, the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, and the East African Court of Justice. So he's appeared in lots of very important cases in the US Supreme Court, the US Court of Appeal, and the Israeli Supreme Court, and has authored or co-authored a number of leading texts on South African law, including class action litigation in South Africa, constitutional litigation in South Africa, and and the uh, Manual of Civil Procedure and International Law. So as an academic, he's taught for many years, and in fact, that is how I came across uh, Max, who in fact taught me when I was attending London School of Economics to read for a LLM degree in public international law, and Max uh, was a teaching assistant at the LSE, uh, and I learnt a great deal about uh, international criminal law and international humanitarian law uh, from Max, and we have uh, kept in touch ever since, and indeed even authored a book together, which I notice doesn't appear on his uh, CV anymore. Uh, it's a little out of date now, I think. Uh, now, Max is here because Max has written and spoken about uh, reparations both for slavery and for colonial injustice, for many, many years. In fact, I heard him speak about this subject in 2001. So that is how long Max has been engaged with this very important subject. And it's why I asked Max to come and talk to us today about it. What I wanted to do, Max, if I may, is just introduce our discussion with a quote from a speech made by Emmanuel Macron at the University of Ouaga in Algiers in 2017. Because what President Macron said, I think, is hugely significant, particularly when there is a silence from other European leaders and from the global north, from the beneficiaries of uh, slavery and colonialism on this subject. What the president of the French Republic said was that the colonization of the African continent by European powers was a crime against humanity. He went on to say that colonialism was a significant part of French history, a true example of barbarism. And it is an example of this past history that we must have the courage to confront by earnestly apologizing to those toward whom we have committed these acts. Now, I want to try and start this discussion, Max, if I can, by breaking down what it was that Macron said in that speech. And I guess the first and obvious question is, is it right, do you think, to describe the colonisation of Africa, both by France, but also, by, of course, by other European powers at the time, in particular Great Britain, as a crime against humanity?
1: Well, firstly, thank you, Ben, and thank you for inviting me onto this podcast. And um, it's clear that it's time for us to update that book. Uh, <laughs> in answer to the question, though, I do think labels are very important. And in response to the debate about whether this uh, colonialization might be described as a crime against humanity, I think we can helpfully take our cue from sort of one of the leading experts in the world on reparations, uh, Mr. von Boven, who has said that in that world of reparations, it's very important that particular attention is paid to the gross violations of human rights and fundamental freedoms, and which he described as including genocide and slavery uh, and like practices. And just as, the, as a matter of philosophy, uh, as a starting point, I think that proposal makes sense because it acknowledges what we're talking about here. It's the scale of, of human misery that really is, is so large relative to what is possible by way of redress that our efforts as human beings need to be directed and focused on those most serious human rights abuses. And perhaps in that respect, a a very useful standard to measure what we're talking about, in fact, comes from uh, the International Criminal Court's codification of crimes against humanity, to answer your question uh, directly. Because when one looks at the ICC's uh, list of crimes against humanity, we immediately get a sense of what we're talking about in the colonial context because the specific acts or classes of offences that make up that crime against humanity under the uh, Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court include a number of acts which we might associate with colonialism. And they're all committed in order to meet this category definition on a, a, a scale which is widespread or systematic. And, of course, that would, by definition, include colonialism. And they include acts like murder. Uh, like extermination, which would involve mass or large-scale killing, or intentional infliction of conditions of life, like the deprivation of food and medicine and so on. Uh, Enslavement, of course, deportation, uh, imprisonment or other severe deprivation of physical liberties. And the list goes on to include the crime of apartheid, which would include, of course, the classic idea of subjugating people simply on the basis of them being different by way of their race. And so two points immediately arise from that list of crimes. Um, The first one, Ben, is that, of course, human beings we know are capable of treating other human beings with unspeakable cruelty just because they're different and because there's a sense of superiority that allows them to do so. And of course, colonialism has a central feature as its heart being that type of abuse And the second is that these definitions that we today accept for crimes against humanity match in in very many material ways what was being done under colonial times. Racial discrimination, of course, was at the core of European colonialism. And having declared the other as inferior for centuries, colonialism then allowed itself to justify brutal regimes, uh, against people and their exploitation, including, of course, of their natural resources and, and their lives. So in that respect, colonialism has, in fact, become a feature, if you will, of a crime against humanity, because its predicate features are so closely associated with what we today describe as a crime against humanity.
0: Can I just pick up on the, the last thing that you just said, which is that colonialism and what was done by the European powers to Africa and its peoples in the colonial era very much looks like the constituent elements of a crime against humanity in today's terms. But isn't that the difficulty, that it's in today's terms? And at the time, racist theories of superiority and the crimes committed under colonialism even slavery until the mid 19th century was not regarded as any sort of crime still less a crime of a particular seriousness that an international law attaches to crimes against humanity and genocide and war crimes
1: yes i absolutely that is a very significant difficulty for international law because if one appreciates that that question um as i do international law has to be recognized as enabling colonialism, as being complicit in it. And so when one talks about international law, you really need to ask yourself, at what time are you talking about international law? And so the doctrine of intertemporal law, is, as, as I think you, you mentioned, is the idea that you can't judge people by legal standards that at the time those acts were being perpetrated allowed that type of conduct. And we know that slavery was permitted under international law and colonial powers exercised their rights in a manner which at the time for them uh, was perfectly permissible under international law. But of course, they wrote international law. They decreed what international law uh, was um, allowed to uh, permit. And so all of this complicity in the time, in the process of colonial conquest and domination, was carried out by the great powers because the great powers, through their own concepts of international law, enabled that type of colonization. So sovereignty, for example, could be acquired over terra nullius, that lovely Latin expression that means that the land belongs to nobody, because we don't recognize the people's rights to that land uh, when we arrive there. Uh, Of course, it did belong to them, it was their land. But if you have a doctrine like terra nullius, allowing you to simply assert that that land is not owned by anybody, because you don't recognize that title, it uh, certainly opens the doors for you to be able to do what you wish when you arrive in the territory. Territory belonged, in other words, to nobody. And in that context, of course, colonialism was permitted. And so you're absolutely right that in so many respects, international law was an enabler at the time. But that process of international law has changed. And it's changed radically. It's changed radically in two ways. Firstly, it's changed with the process of decolonialization, which began in the 1950s and the 1960s, as we know well. And the non-aligned movement began to fight very strongly for 50 years to end colonialism. And the focus, understandably, at that time was to speed up independence and the rights of people to self-determine and the rights to have their own form of democratic governance. And so issues of justice or, or reparations were often sidelined in that process. And the international legal system therefore allowed for another 50 years not to confront its own past. But things have changed again, even more uh, progressively, and I think correctly, recently, over the past three or so decades, we've seen, for example, the World Conference Against Racism in Durban in 2001, where member states came together to denounce the brutality of colonialism and they called for various aspects of reparations in response. And we've seen more recently at an international level, the International Law Commission has begun to take on draft articles defining crimes against humanity, that expression we spoke about earlier. And including in that uh, is a study around how states' obligations are going to be triggered to not only refrain from and prevent these types of crimes from taking place today, but importantly, and this is a critical point, to redress such crimes even where they've occurred in the past.
0: Max, that's very helpful and it answers the question, but it all sounds rather aspirational. Uh, What is being done now, or is anything being done, about righting these historical wrongs? What is international law doing now about reparations for colonial injustice, and and what form are those reparations taking? Sure.
1: So... Before we, we, we answer what form they're taking, just to accept that, as I've highlighted already, we've moved to a space now where international law, both through the idea of international human rights, which recognize that if rights are violated, there must be a remedy for that violation. It's a, a, re- it's a reasonably recent turn of events in international law, but a very significant one. So that uh, international human rights turn to the idea of rights being available And for people whose rights have been wronged to find some form of remedy is a very significant development. And separately, we've seen that we've got a a renewed focus on the idea of reparations through a number of United Nations studies and bodies and a special rapporteur, indeed, that's been appointed. And importantly, in the context of racial discrimination. So if, if one looks at the more recent developments, I'll give you three examples Uh, we've firstly seen increasingly the idea that there should be some form of restitution uh, for, for example, uh, art objects, historical artifacts, documents and so on that have been plundered during the colonial years being returned, being at least recognized as plunder and pillage. And that's just one uh, small but very pronounced example. Secondly, we've seen examples of individual groups beginning to use their uh, muscle in court to advocate for reparations. An obvious but very good example is Volkswagen, who uh, was recently sued by Brazilian workers because Volkswagen had collaborated with the country's military during the dictatorship in in the 1960s. And Volkswagen then paid a very large amount of compensation in response to those human rights violations. And then third, and and this is touching again on the point I was making earlier about the United Nations, we've seen how the United Nations has begun to adopt resolutions and reparations themselves. The importance of reparations is now recognized as we see, for example, in the creation of a special rapporteur. And that special rapporteur under the United Nations system is a special rapporteur on contemporary forms of racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia, and related intolerance. And this is an example precisely of where we are seeing renewed energy being given to how reparations might be fashioned and what they might take by way of their form and how to overcome very many of the legal issues and the legal problems that are raised by people who attempt to say that all of this is, as you suggested earlier, very difficult. It's theoretical, but how do we actually get to this? Uh, That's where we're now at in an entirely new space and people thinking creatively about these problems.
0: One of the things that Macron did in his talk in Algiers three years ago was apologize. Does apology have a role in this process?
1: Yes, absolutely. And So firstly, to say that as the reparations modalities, as far as they go... Apology is a very significant form of reparations. It's recognised as an international form of reparations uh, under international law. There are others. The, 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 the range of reparations go from compensation uh, to restitution uh, to what's called satisfaction. Uh, those are all international law terms, but included under satisfaction is the idea of an apology. An apology is, of course, as um, President Macron's highlighted, I think it's a very necessary and a very good start, but it's hardly sufficient. And that's important because we've got to recognize that the formal abolition of colonialism doesn't address the ongoing and very racially discriminatory structures that have been built by those practices and which continue to resonate today in variety of forms. So many contemporary manifestations of racial discriminations have to be understood, I think, as a continuation of insufficiently remediated historical harms and structures of racial injustice and inequality. And they continue to be embedded in our lives and our political and legal structures and our institutions. And quite aside from that, while apology is a good start, as I was saying, Ben, it sounds odd to say that merely apologizing or regretting one's involvement in history's most revolting atrocities could ever be enough. Justice obviously suggests that we can and we must do better than that. Because apology alone, I think, is is a bit of a weaseled expression. So it's a good start, but certainly not enough.
0: Just to turn to those other modalities then that you have just raised, let's look first at restitution. A lot of these crimes, whether they were land, theft, murder, extermination, destruction of cultural heritage, expropriation of cultural heritage, Many of these crimes, accepting that that's what they are as a matter of international law, were committed hundreds of years ago. How do you even begin, uh, as a lawyer or involved in a legal process governed by rules, uh, how do you even begin to restore that property that has been taken or, or those lives or that land? How do you even find whose land it was, for example? Or who owned that object? Sure. There are two
1: points to make there. I mean, the first is that, of course, it's not to say that there aren't particular artifacts, particular memorials, particular objects, particular artworks that cannot be identified. Indeed, there can be. And with enough historical evidence and historians working on it, there is the possibility of being able to uh, recognize that colonial objects that have, taken, that have been taken do exist and may well be restored. So uh, it's, it's certainly uh, difficult, but not impossible in respect of itemized objects. There, I think, is certainly scope for us to be able to see restitution doing work in that context. But your point raises a, perhaps a separate uh, argument against the idea of reparations. And it's this idea that just generally speaking, we're talking about uh, crimes and acts that just took place too long ago. And I think that there we, we need to recognize that uh, the, the argument against that or in favor of reparations really is reasonably powerful, and that is that reparationists call for compensation in a different way to the, what we understand ordinarily or to restitution as we understand it ordinarily in a, a, an individual claim against another individual. It's not that type of reparations. It's a much broader focus where we are looking on trying to correct contemporary effects of past wrongs as they continue to manifest themselves in the here and now. So it's less a focus for reparationists on looking, for example, on the idea of getting money to redress historical wrongs of slavery and its compensation, or it's a form of reparation to address the current effects of colonialism or slavery in that way. So if we think about uh, compensation or restitution or any of the other forms of reparation a little more creatively in this holistic way, then compensation payments could be used and restitution uh, measures could be uh, sought in a way which allows African states to center themselves much more uh, internationally through an improvement of the infrastructure of Africa as a whole. In other words, we're looking at something along the lines of what the Durban Declaration flowing from that conference stressed uh, in Article 158 of its declaration. And It's a very important one to focus on. I'll just very quickly read it for you. It says, These historical injustices have undeniably contributed to the poverty, underdevelopment, marginalisation, economic disparities and so on that affect many people in different parts of the world. And the conference recognises the need to develop programmes for the social and economic development of these societies within the framework of a new partnership based on the spirit of solidarity and mutual respect. In this context, says the Durban conference, we are thinking about areas such as debt relief, poverty eradication, building or strengthening democratic institutions, the transfer of technology, infrastructure development and education. So to summarise, what this is saying is that each of the forms of reparation, Ben, whether it's restitution or compensation or satisfaction, each of them can be... Un- we, we accept, uh, as, as anybody interested in reparations, that Western states would be understandably concerned about the implications of opening themselves to legal challenges. But it's really only through reasoned and appropriately goal-directed arguments that reparations are needing to be understood properly, because the alternative is far worse. By simply closing the door to these debates, by not thinking about them carefully, the alternative is far worse. And that is that Western states have, through the passage of time, allowed themselves to become cozy with injustice. And that's surely something that everybody would wish
0: to avoid. On the assumption that, that that is something that everybody would wish to avoid... How are these claims going to be mediated? Um, we have a, an international system which is in disarray at the moment for all obvious and well-known reasons. There is no global sovereign. Who determines these claims? Who decides whether they are fair? Who decides how large these reparation payments are going to be? and we're looking at 400 years of injustice and loss and damage, these claims could be enormous, incomprehensibly large. How is the process going to work? Or is it a legal process or or should it be some other process? These payments that ought to be reflected in overseas aid budgets, for example.
1: Yes. So, I mean, I think the first answer is, as you suggested, that it's it's to think a little more creatively and out of the box. It's not about an individual versus individual claim, which is hammered out in court and debates about causation and, and so on. It might be in certain cases if the evidence is there. I'm not discounting that opportunity, Ben, but it's, it's certainly more than that. And part of it, of course, is, is, is this clear suggestion that, well, how, how should the present generation in any way be held responsible for and obliged to redress the wrongs of their forebears so many, many years ago. But again, I think we've got to be very careful about the hypocrisy of those arguments. The present generation, for example, contributed towards more than 300 billion pounds in today's money that was paid, as we know, to Britain's slave owners for the loss of their human property. So that compensation in the UK was formalized under the Slavery Abolition Act, and it was so large, it was only paid off in, I think it was 2015. And so the hypocrisy in that world is very double edged. If reparations had to be paid to those who profited from African enslavement rather than those who were enslaved, then we've got to be open to the constructive and creative debate about how to ensure reparations for the enslaved, too. But it's also, and to use a word you opened with, it's also a form of self serving amnesia. Um, it's not as though the calls for reparations only began now, they've been made consistently, but they've been ignored. So during the time of enslavement, for example, and unceasingly since the 18th century, black people have made these cases for reparations, whether in petitions or public speeches or, or, or judicial claims. And so if it's too long ago, if that's the argument, that's simply because it's been ignored for too long since. So my first point is that you've got to be able to recognize that uh, there is a, a, a need for an answer to these issues. It's not going to be swept
0: under the carpet. It's not going to go away. The debate that we've been having about reparations has focused very much on what has taken place in the past and the aspirations of the reparations movement and international lawyers like Umax, so eloquently and persuasively addressed. But the world at the moment is, is in turmoil for all sorts of reasons, the pandemic being just... One, But what we've also seen this summer is the emergence of a truly global Black Lives Matter movement following the killing of George Floyd in the United States. Does the very academic and sometimes rather abstract and legalistic discussion that we are having about reparations for colonial injustice and slavery have any relevance to those contemporary issues, do you think?
1: Absolutely. Well, first, b- before I answer that, which I do wish to, let me just say something about how that there is sometimes a criticism that the cause for reparations, as I think you correctly put it earlier, Ben, can sometimes seem abstract and sometimes seem removed, too far away, too difficult. And, and I, I get that. The legal complexity of these cases is genuine. And, and I, as I've already said, with creative lawyering and political will, they can be overcome. And I'll just give you one example of that. Example of reparations for colonial harm that persisted well into the 20th century was in respect of of Canada and the manner in which the Indian residential school system had been implemented in Canada from the late 1800s all the way through into 1990. And, And that was a system of assimilating Indigenous children by stripping them of their traditions, customs, values and languages. And those children... And their, their ancestors had obviously suffered tremendously, and their descendants have now brought a matter in Canada for some form of class action arising from that. And the persistent efforts by them has eventually resulted in out of court settlement, just so that we we have a sense that this is real world stuff. This is not just the abstract world. People are claiming for reparations. Well, they brought a case, and an out of court of settlement was reached in respect of the colonial abuse that they suffered for. 15,000 former students, uh, and ultimately an estimated worth in that settlement of five billion Canadian dollars, the largest class action settlement in Canada. So reparations in that context shows that it is possible, is the first point I'd want to to make and answer your question. The second point arising from, as you say, the fact that the world's in turmoil with the Black Lives Matter aspects, we've got real issues of un- Uh, repaired harm, which seem to be constantly resurfacing today, I think simply directs national attention once more towards the systemic racial injustices that uh, exist. And they shine a light on the need for courts and international institutions to think creatively about reforming international law itself. In that world, I think you can see, for instance, the very important example of a call for reparations that's now being made nationally and internationally, uh, through the multi state Caribbean community. Of course, the Caribbean community suffered tremendously in that colonial uh, history, but they've presented a 10 point plan for reparatory justice from Western European nation states. And those reparations are being sought for historical injustices and ongoing racial harm. And they're linking their call quite correctly for this form of reparations because of the ongoing tragedy. Of a racial disparity and inequality that continues to exist in the world today, so I think there is a link, as you've highlighted.
0: So, if I understand your points correctly, and to try, in my own mind at least, to link this to an earlier topic of our discussion, which is the objections to the principle of reparations on the on the intertemporal principle. In other words, the law should not be seen to be punishing the current generation for the wrongs of our forebears if, if i can put it in, in in that way that you see the relevance of the contemporary reparations debate as reflecting the continuing nature of these crimes that the fact that these injustices have continued unbroken since the colonial era that there is a continuity of suffering and of harm and of exploitation, that needs to be addressed now. Is that have I got that correct? Absolutely, in two ways. I mean, the first is that I think one
1: needs to look back at what happened and confront it with one's eyes open and 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 reflect on the horror of what happened. I mean, the African American intellectual uh, W. B. Du Bois, I think, put it absolutely perfectly when he said. The enslavement of at least 12 million Africans is the sum of all villainies and the cause of all sorrow and the root of all ongoing prejudice. Now, it's said very powerfully, and you might disagree with aspects of it, but I think it's clear that in the context of this world, with a colonial history that we confront with eyes open and with the embedded history of slavery that's part and parcel of that system, that you really do have an understanding of just where all of the racial prejudices and inequalities and so on must at least have some of their genesis because the the suggestion that history in the form of colonialism and slavery has nothing to do with the w- manner in which black people are racially oppressed suffer economic disparities and ultimately are marginalized in so many ways is to suggest that well that's just because of their genetic reality Well, that's racist in itself to suggest that. And so I think statistically, one needs to look back at all of this and recognize the history as having an ongoing reality for us today. And it's not an ongoing reality only in respect of peoples and how they are suffering whatever it is that they, on a day-to-day basis, experience as a marginalized group, economically and socially. It's also at a nation-state level. And Ben, you and I Have looked at this in the context of international law and in the international criminal court world. You just think about the absurdity of the Security Council. Why should all the permanency to the UN Security Council still be given to countries that are exclusively not African? Why is it that Africa, as a collection of states, is not able to have a seat on the United Nations Security Council. There's a a primordial debt, I think, that is owed to black peoples for hundreds of years of enslavement and degradation, at the very least, which would suggest that one of the ways in which that imbalance might be remedied is by recognizing that the international system itself needs to be reformed. So these answers to the ongoing harm are answers which resonate not only at What do we do about the problems of racism in our own local communities, our schools, our neighborhoods? But it also goes all the way to the other side of the scale. What do we do about that ongoing disparity in the international system itself?
0: Well, Max, that's uh, moving on to another subject, albeit one that's uh, very closely associated with this. Um, Max, I think we've come to the end of our time for this particular uh, session, and it's also me, because I'm the only person on the other end of the of the line. So thank you very much uh, on behalf of Mishkondorea, for those of us who've been involved in organising this programme, and also to those who are listening to this podcast for your uh, contribution uh, to this uh, debate. And I, I really want to stress that the title of the programme was really quite carefully thought through, because it did seem to us... That This amnesia, that this forgetting, this um, neglect of the history of the colonial era and Britain's role in Africa is, is really a very significant part of this process of seeking reparative justice. And this podcast itself, I hope, in some very small way, begins to address some of these issues about the loss of memory and the willful refusal to engage in the debate. And it is very much the beginning, I hope, of a conversation that we will all be having in the weeks, months and years to come about these very important subjects. So Max, uh, thanks very much uh, for your contribution. Thanks very much, Ben.